Hi, it's Jamie. And I'm Portia. And we are Just Two Pearls. Join us for Adventures in Pearls. Hey, Pearls. Happy New Year. We are so excited to be back with you this Friday after Martin Luther King Day. And we'll tell you more about the episode in a moment. But why don't we start out with a reflection from Sadia Hartman's book, Scenes of Subjection. She writes, in short, the advent of freedom marked the transition from the pain and minimally sensate existence of the slave to the burdened individuality of the responsible and encumbered free person. Mm-mm. That's a good one. I've never read that text before. So thank you for That's sharing. That's a good one. That is a good one. I feel like I need to get my life in 2018, you know, get up all this, you know, this black girl magic reading and just all of that goodness because it's important. Reading is fundamental. It is. It? And reading black authors, um, I think, is just so powerful and enlightening and just really increases our perspective and our ability to understand our past and our present and hopefully to have some hope for our future. Well, Speaking of having hope for the future, before 2017 ended, Jamie, I traveled to Sarasota, Florida, and it was for a gathering of prophetic preaching cohort um, run by the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. He has a prophetic preaching lab in partnership with Auburn Seminary, and we, uh, a couple of us, uh, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and um, some 40-somethings, but all in all, us younger um, clergy folk who are um, engaging in the work of social justice and preaching social justice have gotten together for a second time in Florida, which was perfect timing because, you know, it is cold in the Northeast. I don't know about where our listeners are, but I know one thing. It is cold in New Jersey, and so that trip could not have come at any better of a time to spend four days in the sun um, well, actually, I really wasn't in the sun like I'm, like I'm perpetrating to say. <laughs> I was actually in the hotel most of the time. But it was very enlightening. It was very enrich- enriching. And so our guest for the t- today, which is Devin Crawford, um, he was actually there with me. And so he was one of those uh, participants. And so I'm really, really glad that Devin got to be on the show with us today, as you will hear later in the show. So let me just tell you a little bit about that trip, Jamie. So one, it was just warm, and I was wearing a sundress. And it was December, and I could walk around without a jacket, not sleeveless, but without a jacket. And that trip was not just about being in Florida, but the prophetic preaching cohort, we came together to tell stories, to pass on stories from one generation to the next. And so we had Attorney Jordan, we had Attorney Marion Wright Edelman, we had Otis Moss Jr., we had Edwina Moss, and we came together to hear their stories surrounding Howard Thurman and how they knew Howard Thurman, who is a great mystic, theologian, preacher, practitioner, and how they built this relationship with him and how he's impacted all of their lives. And so he was our ancestor so he was the ancestor of the moment, and um, all of them were the elder sages that we had. So that these stories of justice and liberation won't die, the best thing that we can do 
is to be griots and to share the story with another generation. And so out of that conversation, many of us felt refreshed. Many of us felt renewed and passionate about going out on the front lines to fight for voter rights, to fight for immigration rights, to fight for restoring uh, citizen rights and returning citizens to uh, sexual abuse and sexual violence and speaking up with hashtag me too from just all of the different things that plague our society and understanding that we as young preachers are called to be present with the people who are suffering, but also called to speak truth to power to those systems that are keeping our people oppressed. It was such an honor. It was such a privilege just to see people that I know in one space, from people that I know from different spaces in one space, to converse, to dialogue, to laugh, to cry, to appreciate what God is doing in our lives individually and collectively. Um, there was no preaching in terms of traditional preaching behind of a pulpit, at least not from the participants, but there was preaching in terms of there was proclamation of good news. We had media training where we learned how to engage the media if media were to ask us on a particular topic of as an expert. We also went to worship. You know, you can't have a, a bunch of preachers together and not have some kind of worship. And so the mosses, they actually did a tag team sermon that uh, was called Higher Ground, uh, kind of a play on the Stevie Wonder song, and it was talking about climbing. And the elders have been climbing and climbing, but at some point they reach a landing and the rest of us need to keep on climbing. But even as we keep on climbing, we must look back and say thank you to the ones who have carried us up the, up the stair. And so uh, this metaphor of the stair, as not everyone wants to take the stair, but people rather take the elevator. And so we are called to be people who climb the stairs and, um, and, and, and just endure and so it was just great. It was awesome. It was a fantastic time. And it, it, was just, it was just more than what I can articulate into words. But let me tell you, we had a blast. We had a great time. And I hope and pray that we get together for a third time as a cohort. And so I'm very grateful that we had that experience to share together um, just before the holiday season. It was definitely necessary for many of us. Fabulous. That sounds like it was a great experience for everyone. And uh, I, I must say, as one who's been living in Southern California, um, we are less familiar with the cold. But looking at the map, when the meteorologist, you know, when I was with you for New Year's Eve and we were looking at that map, three-quarters of America is freezing. So I'm, I'm going to say I'm on pretty good authority that most of our listeners are probably in cold places, or at least they were at the end of December. So I'm sure it was a good thing to go to Florida for a bit and uh, be with that cohort and that group. Oh, it was glorious. So, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, what's happening on the episode today, uh, you already alluded to it, but uh, what exactly is going on in this episode? So in this episode, we are having our first installment of Adventures in Blackness. So y'all know our tagline is Adventures in Pearls and Cultivating the Pearl Within You. But this time around, in addition, as a subheading, we are having Adventures in Blackness and cultivating the blackness within us and just being proud of that and just loving on that. And, um, and we know that not everyone who listens to us is of African-American descent or of African descent, and that's okay. But um, hopefully you'll learn and you'll get to journey with us as we have a good time. And so on this episode, 
We're going to have um, one of my cohort members, uh, Devin J. Crawford, with us, who is an activist in his own right, an advocate in his own right, and he's just going to share with us a little bit during this MLK holiday. Um, and so this is a little bit about MLK, but not MLK, um, because there are more people behind the movement that we may or may not know about or may not hear about. And so we're going to discuss some of that, particularly some of the women and LGBTQ persons who were in the movement. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Devin. Yep. Okay. So let's take a listen. Hi, Pearl. We are here today with a special guest. His name is Devin Jerome Crawford. So as we continue in this series of adventures and blackness, we are so glad that he's here with us. And so just a little bit about Devin. Devin is a proud native of Birmingham, Alabama. He is the son of Jerome and Deborah Crawford and the brother of Danielle. Devin is a 2015 honors graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, earning a bachelor's degree in philosophy. While at college, Devin served as president of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel Assistance Program, Circle Presidents of Omicron Delta Kappa Leadership Society, Presidential Ambassador of an Oprah Winfrey South Africa and Zimbabwe Fellow, UPS Scholar, and an inaugural member of the John Lewis Fellowship through Humanity in Action and the Center for Civil and Human Rights. During his final year at college, Devin was named the 2015 Martin Luther King Jr. Scholar. Additionally, he is a member of Alpha Phi Fraternity Incorporated. Devin is currently pursuing his Master of Divinity degree at the University of Chicago Divinity School in Chicago, Illinois. As a licensed minister, Devin's theology is ultimately concerned with the freedom and liberation of black people. His academic interests include African and African-American religious ethics, historiography, and, historic and historical theory, and the intersection of faith and politics as well as the social movements in the United States. Above all, Devin is passionate about preaching the liberating gospel of Jesus and co-creating a beloved world community. Welcome to the show, Devin Jerome Crawford. Um, could you just expound a little bit upon your work and what you do? You have such a rich bio of all the things that you're involved in. And so could you just give us a little bit more about the work that you are doing currently today? Um. I'm currently a student at the University of Chicago uh, in the Divinity School, and while I'm here, I'm also serving as a minister at Trinity United Church of Christ on the South Side. Um, and in that capacity, I've been able to work with a number of faith communities in the areas of criminal justice reform, um, voter empowerment, and mobilizing activists for a new uh, movement um, that seeks to provide equity for the least of these. Um, as you've read, um, I start my bio or my work really at home. Um, I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which is in many ways the crucible of uh, the civil and human rights movement of the 20th century. And much of my upbringing has informed the kind of work that I've done, um, particularly as it concerns young people and returning citizens, uh, knowing that these are two very powerful groups in our country two very disenfranchised groups because of structural injustices. Um, and, and these are two groups, criminal, uh, well, returning citizens and young people, that can really inaugurate a revolution of values. So my work is really about empowering and equipping uh, this contingent of, of movement makers, of change agents, 
uh, so that we can have that revolution uh, in the 21st century. So we uh, just celebrated, by the time everyone's hearing this podcast, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so this is the Friday after Martin Luther King Jr. Day that folks will be listening to this episode. And so can you talk a little bit about what you understand to be the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and what impact you think his legacy has on the current movement work that's happening? I think that Dr. King represents um, a tradition that uh, Gary Dorian posits in his book, uh, The Black Social Gospel. He is in line with a, a long legacy of activists, abolitionists, uh, faith leaders who have mobilized the faith community to inaugurate uh, revolutions that have made America live up to the true meaning of its creed. Uh, Dr. King was born and raised in the black church. Um, it should not be lost on us that before he was uh, a, a national you know, movement leader in civil rights before he was um, awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace, uh, one of the youngest people to earn it at that time, he was a pastor. Uh, so he stands in a proud tradition of uh, people like Septimia Poinsett Clark, um, people like Frederick Douglass, people like Henry McNeil Turner, who have fought uh, for the freedom and liberation of black people using religious authority. And so uh, I think that Dr. King has much to uh, offer to us today um, as people of faith uh, who struggle with um, connecting our hero sto- stories that are in our congregations to the holy story. Um, he, he teaches us how to maintain a, an eye and a concern for the least of these. Uh, that Dr. King was killed uh, in Memphis 50 years ago fighting for the rights of sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and was on the uh, precipice of uh, launching the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which was a sustained campaign to offer uh, attention and also resources to balance out the distribution of resources here in America for poor and working class people. So that's the legacy that we should really uh, focus on in this year as we look at the type of um, economic inequity that is larger than any other time in our lifetimes, when we look at the type of suppression of votes uh, that has occurred, particularly in my home state of Alabama, uh, when we look at criminal justice reform and how the prison industry reinscribes the legacy of slavery in America, Dr. King offers as many tools on how we can approach these things, not only as a civil servant, but also as people of faith. Thank you, Devin, for that. That's really, really important. And so you've mentioned some persons who, outside of this MLK, who have really fought and worked hard in this movement. And so can you talk a little bit more about the women who were a part of these movements? For what we know, um, especially seeing films like Selma or just even in our history books, we don't always hear about the work of the women, but I'm thankful for films like Selma that kind of highlight and illuminate that there were women who were pushing these movements, women who were actively working and actively participating. And so what can you say about the women who were in these movements and actually taking a stand and taking a voice and speaking up and speaking out? I think that the women of the movement, um, as in many movements, were the backbone, they were the fuel, they were the, the hands and feet that actualized 
the revolution. Um, when you think about uh, Ella Baker and how she was integral not only to the SCLC, uh, but also to the NAACP uh, as a field worker, as a trainer, as someone who equipped young people to engage in nonviolent direct action. Uh, we don't hear much about her, but she was really um, the, the, the backbone or the connector which brought together the older generation and the younger generation of movement leaders. We think about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and the prophetic witness that she offered when she said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, in really working with sharecroppers in Mississippi to enfranchise them, uh, looking at black rural poor people, not just the urban poor. Uh, women offer varying perspectives. They offer a dynamism that keeps the movement alive. Uh, when we talk about going back to the faith community and how the faith community was integral in the movement, well, the majority of our churches uh, in particular are comprised of women. Uh, when we talk about, um, you know, uh, black women, uh, even recently, uh, saving the election in Alabama. Uh, well, black women, it was really black church women, uh, because that is where our communities receive uh, the most of our political education. That is where people do their stump speeches. That is where people go to vote. They are polling stations. Uh, the majority of these communities are made up of women. Uh, so that there has never been a successful movement in this country for the freedom and liberation of black people that did not include the work of black women. And even, you know, to extend this conversation to members of the LGBTQIA uh, plus community, when you think about the strategies and methods of nonviolent resistance and nonviolent direct action, uh, much of that is accredited to Dr. King uh, after, you know, visiting Mahatma Gandhi or studying with uh, Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays and Howard Thurman. Uh, but it was Bayard Rustin who was really his tutor uh, in the philosophy and methods of nonviolent direct action um, it, when he was in Montgomery with Dr. King as they uh, launched the Montgomery bus protest. Um, you know, further, Diane Nash, uh, she complicated this idea of agopic energy and how that informs our resistance, nonviolent resistance. So Dr. King is a, a, a wonderful figure that many of us um, find much hope in, his, we find much hope in his legacy, but he was himself an aggregation of voices, of philosophies, of ideas um, that were not simply, they didn't just come ex nihilo or out of nothing, but they were, uh, you know, the result of much conversation and, and, and conferencing with uh, partners who were not just men, not just heterosexual black preachers in, in the South, but uh, some northern gay folks or northern women or rural women from Mississippi. These were all critical in developing his worldview, his theology, and his philosophy. Yeah, right on. I think when we think about uh, the March on Washington, it's important for us to understand exactly what you just said, that Dr. King was the aggregation of so much black religious and political thought and action throughout the ages ever since we were first brought to these shores. And so uh, I know some of the women and LGBT folks who were part of putting together the March on Washington, that's one of the critiques. When Martin says, I have a dream, it's like, okay, no, we have a dream and we have had it for centuries. And so uh, you're exactly right yeah. that Dr. King was really, he was um, a, an excellent spokesperson and the mouthpiece and the one who could be heard in very particular ways by white America, which 
that's important. We can't uh, take anything away from that. Uh, but we have to understand all the complicated bits and pieces that made the civil rights movement and continues to make so many of the movements for black lives um, possible. And, you know, even thinking about today, Black Lives Matter and the way that um, black same gender loving women have been at the center of creating this movement, um, which in a lot of ways has supported the need to uh, protect and honor black male lives, but the way that black women's ability to um, to protest and to lead political movements is so essential to what we see happening today. So thank you for highlighting that. But um, let's go back to the first sentence of your bio. You were from Birmingham, Alabama, and you, I heard you mention this a little bit earlier in your response to Portia about um, the recent election in Alabama. And so I love having someone from Alabama um, on the line with us today because I'm really curious about, as a resident of Alabama, first of all, um, how did the Doug Jones, Roy Moore, how was that um, negotiated among people who are from Alabama? Because I think we heard a lot of, um, I guess, on the news, white Republicans or white evangelicals who had a certain perspective on things. And then we saw black political action take place, um, which was, uh, for some, maybe unexpected. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what was happening on the ground in Alabama? What were the kinds of conversations that you were having as a person who's from Alabama? As you mentioned, Alabama recently elected a, a, another, a new senator uh, who would complete the term that was, um, that was not completed by Jeff Sessions, the current attorney general, after he was uh, nominated by President Trump last January. Uh, so this was a, uh, like a several months long campaign between Doug Jones and Roy Moore. It, it, it was interesting in several ways. Doug Jones is... Uh, a, a brother who, well, he's a white man who has been a, a longtime attorney in the, in the state of Alabama who prosecuted a member of the Ku Klux Klan, one who was accused to accused of bombing the 16th Street Baptist Church. He was um, integral in prosecuting that Klan's member for that act of domestic terror. Um, and he was running against Roy Moore, who is, well, I mean, he's been banned from a mall in Gaston, Alabama, because of his history of pedophilia, uh, not to mention issues of white supremacy, uh, homophobia, overall xenophobia. Uh, so this was a real wake-up call for mem- you know, community members in Alabama, black people in Alabama, to vote as if our lives depended on it, because it did. Um, you have a candidate in Roy Moore who said that any amendment that was passed after the 10th Amendment uh, had to be uh, reevaluated because that is what, what before the Tenth Amendment or anything after the Tenth Amendment was passed, things were going pretty well. So he's basically saying before women had the right to vote, before African people of African descent were freed from slavery and had the opportunity to vote and to determine for themselves, everything was good. And so that that uh, harkened back to you know dog whistling in the worst kind of way, the issue you know of George Wallace and, and that kind of legacy in Alabama. And this was an opportunity for us to really show our political power and elect somebody who represents the interests um, that are really pressing in our communities or the issues that are pressing in our communities. So in Doug Jones, we had somebody who was willing to talk about criminal justice reform. We had somebody who was willing to address issues of voter suppression in Alabama. We had somebody who was willing to, 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 to deal with issues of, of race and racism, uh, perhaps not in the most explicit way, uh, or not in, in the best way, but in a way that in which we could work with and, and pressure him, whereas Roy Moore 
uh, you know, he really uh, had a campaign that was a masquerade for white supremacy, reclaiming the power of white supremacy in, in Alabama. Uh, so this was a really proud time for us to really see, in spite of all the voter suppression, in spite of the, the 10 plus DMVs that were closed in 2015, in order to hinder um, black people in the Black Belt, Lowndes County, Alabama, from receiving the proper voter IDs in order to get to the polls or have access to the polls. In spite of all that, black people are still able to show up and show our political power. So moving forward, it's not only about, you know, using our power to elect somebody that represents our interests, but further preparing our own candidates and funding our own candidates, uh, you know, so that we can have a, a seat at the table that is not compromised, that is homegrown, uh, so that we can continue the work that we have, that we have begun. And also uh, really push for a, a, a reinstated voting rights act that has effectively been gutted. Um, I think that Alabama, with this, uh, with this showing it in the Senate, uh, has proven that it can do that work, um, that, it can, that it can really lead the way as far as building political power, not just for the state, but for the, the masses of people in this country who've been disenfranchised by a series of voter ideologues and voter suppression tactics uh, that we've seen particularly in North Carolina and Texas. So Alabama, it was good to be back home for the election, to be able to go home and, and cast my ballot um, and, and to share the story. Because this year, uh, 2018, we have midterm elections. And it is so critical for our community that we get out and that we vote and that we have people running for office, not just, you know, Senate, uh, Congress, but state houses, running for mayors, running for tax assessors, running for a sheriff. You don't have to be a law enforcement officer to run for sheriff. Uh, these are critical uh, positions that manage budgets that manage, you know, cities and development that are critical for our, our sustainability and our power and our ability to thrive as people of African descent in America. Wow. That is all really, really just, wow, Devin. <laughs> and so it leads me to this question of wanting to know what then becomes the hope, right? So we see all of the things that are going around um, just across the landscape, right, especially with um, returning citizens and restoring of voter rights. And so we're all millennials here on this, conver on this conversation. My question is, what then becomes the hope and what should be the expectation of those of us who are millennials, who are in churches, who are worshiping, who may not necessarily be in church or worshiping either. So it could be anywhere across the spectrum of uh, millennials. What should be the expectation and what is your hope for us mm. in the movement? <laughs> the hope lies not simply in what we see, you know, um, that we see that we can elect somebody that represents our interests or that we see that you know, we can excel and achieve in every endeavor. Um, but it, it's, it's in the possibility, the opportunity to become. Um, you know, freedom and liberation are not guaranteed um, promises. It was Coretta Scott King who, who brilliantly stated that freedom is an ongoing project that was, must be won by every generation. And I think a lot of hope for me in particular comes from the fact that I know my history, that I know that I come from a resilient people, 
who used very little to do so much, uh, that there's hope in knowing that we are not necessarily fighting new battles. They are refined. They have been evolved. But there have been people, resilient people, such as Rosa Louise Parks, uh, Coretta Scott King, Fannie Lou Hamer, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who sacrificed greatly but also achieved greatly as well. Uh, so I think that, you know, as young people, it's important, it's incumbent upon us to really know our history and not just picking up a book, uh, you know, picking up the latest piece of literature of uh, some of our great historians, but to sit down and, and to, to listen to our elders, to, to really uh, take in the oral history and prod our elders for the answers to some of the pressing issues of our, our time. Uh, this past December, um, Portia, you were there. We were privileged to have the opportunity to sit down with several elders um, in, in this movement for freedom and liberation, among those being Dr. Otis Moss, Jr., uh, Mrs. Edwina Moss, um, Attorney Vernon Jordan, and Attorney Marion Wright Edelman. And the work that they set out to, to do or to accomplish 50 years ago, um, they won great victories, but we're still fighting for the right to vote. We're still fighting to end uh, the system of slaveocracy that still lives on in our system of mass incarceration. We're still fighting for the rights of, of workers, of the working poor. Um, and these are the same fights that have endured for 50 years. But the hope is that you, you find people like the Mosses, you find people like Attorney Edelman and Attorney Jordan, and they still have a vibrancy and animation about them, uh, a belief that when you're doing work for justice and for the least of these and for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God, uh, then what you do will last. Um, so I'm excited about really um, joining that legacy, of joining that long work, knowing that the, pro- the project of oppression and, and slavery, um, you know, in 2019, we'll, we'll commemorate 400 years that African people have been on this soil since the first 20 African people landed in Jamestown, Virginia. That's a long time to refine and perfect the project of slavery and oppression. But we have to commit ourselves to a work of being free and liberated, uh, not just in 2019 on, but even right now. But it's, it has to be an ongoing project that we build up in order to counter what's already what we've inherited in this country. Um, and that, I think that's what Dr. King meant when he talked about a revolution of values, when he talked about building the beloved community. Um, that is nothing that will happen within our own lifetime. Uh, but when we commit our lives to it, we are adding, we're adding a step. We're adding uh, some progress so that the next generation can inherit it and have something better than what we had. Yes, I think that's the both sad and powerful truth that the civil rights movement really was not that long ago. And so um, the sad thing about that is that we are still fighting a lot of the the same battles. The good thing about that is we continue to have a dream. And so we can be collaborators with our elders in that work. So Devin, um, we know that you do a lot of writing, um, a lot of research, uh, finishing up there at UChicago. So can you tell folks how they can connect with you online or how they can find your work? Yes. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Devin J. Crawford, 
Um, it's, it's the same tag on Instagram and Twitter, Devin J. Crawford. It's very simple. Uh, I also have a Huffington Post writer's blog, and you can just search Devin Jerome Crawford, and you should find me on Huffington Post. All right. Awesomeness. Everybody look into Devin. Devin is dope. Devin is out here doing the work. It's one thing for us to study and to talk about the work, but it's another thing to actually be engaged in the work. And so Devin is one of those people who is actively doing the work in the community and serving it up for the people. So thank you, Devin, for all that you do. We appreciate you, and best of luck. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Portia and Jamie. This is a wonderful uh, platform and for all that you do for the, the church universal and for our community. Uh, thank you. Hey, thank you, Devin. Thank you for being with us. It was a pleasure. So that conversation with Devin J. Crawford was awesome. Uh, I loved the way that he incorporated all the many voices that created um, and that gave life to Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. And um, as you alluded to in your discussion of the sermon that Reverend, the Reverend Moss did together, uh, it's so important to remember that our elders have already taken us to such high ground, but that it is our job as um, their descendants to take it to even higher ground. And so I hope that from the conversation with Devin that, and from you know, all that's going to be coming up between Martin Luther King Day now and um, Black History Month in February, that all of us will feel really inspired, but also feel like we have the tools to take the work that our forefathers and foremothers have done to even higher ground. So thank you to Devin for joining us and to Portia for thinking of him when we, talk, when we start talking about the concept for this episode. But Portia, we have to be patty, right? It's, it's the new year. Will we still patty? Of course. Of course. Of course. So, Pearls, um, I had a really great New Year's Eve. I went to visit Portia in Newark, and I got to see her in action in the pulpit, which I have not gotten to see. Very, we don't get to see each other in action in the pulpit very often because we tend to be in worship at the same time in different places. And so it was really nice to see Portia at her new church. Um, you all heard from her pastor a few episodes ago, and um, they really make a great team with each other, and so it was really great to see Portia on New Year's Eve, and y'all, she was preaching watch night, and that's kind of a big deal in black church tradition um, because the history of watch night um, was the story of waiting for emancipation um, and waiting within the context of black church, right? And so the black church, um, as we mentioned during the conversation with Devon, is just so central um, to so much of black social and political life. Um, But I also think it's kind of cool because most of the time, a lot of black churches have black male pastors, and so it's pretty much guaranteed that a man is going to preach you into the new year. And after the kind of year that 2017 was, and after all that kind of came up regarding um, sexual violence, which are things that we already knew about, but with them really being at the forefront, I thought it was so, you know, and, and also, you know, we alluded to earlier on, you know, all the ways that women have just been such strong political actors throughout the ages, so we really saw it in a lot of the midterm elections in 2017, um, it was really important to me that a woman preached me into the new year. And so it was great to have my friend Portia be that woman who preached me into the new year, let a woman be the last voice I hear at the end of 2017 and the first voice I hear at the beginning of 2018. But y'all, I was really, it was cold, like Portia said, so I was like really excited to get on the plane and go back to California where it was warm. 
And so um, I stayed for a couple hours at Portia's house, and then around 4 a.m., I got up, I got in the car, my little cold self, and I took myself to the airport because, girl, I had a 6.30 a.m. flight. So I'm up in there, and, you know, they're herding us through like cattle. You know, you know how they treat you, the TSA folks. Um, they're doing their job, but they herd you like cattle. And they even did, like, a special check on me. So, you know, they, like, pat you down extra. Um, and I didn't want to be late for the flight. So they were like, oh, we can do this privately. But then there's a separate person who comes to do it privately. And I was like, how long is this going to take? And the woman said to me, I have no idea. <laughs> so I was like, okay, why don't I just let you pat me down in public then? <laughs> so that was already getting me a little annoyed. But that's not even the entire story. So I get myself through there. And I get to my gate. And I could tell that something was not quite right. So I had a connecting flight in Charlotte. So all of us are standing there at the gate. You know, everybody kind of has deadlines to meet. And uh, so we're just standing there, standing there, standing there. So next thing I know, they're making an announcement that there was a flight attendant who was not there. Apparently, she was in New York City and that she needed to get some sort of transportation so that she could make it to the airport so that we could actually get on the plane. And, of course, you know, um, for safety reasons, they can't fly without their entire crew. So we're sitting here waiting on this one person, okay? Then a few minutes later they say, okay, so anybody who has a connecting flight in Charlotte before 10 a.m., you're not going to make it. So all of you need to rebook your, fight, your flight. Okay, so, of course, panic ensues. And, you know, people are up in the line yelling at each other and all that. And uh, so I ended up calling the, I guess it was um, American Airlines, I ended up calling uh, to try to switch my reservation. And so the woman I was on the phone with, Portia, she was like, okay, well, the next thing flight I can get you on is going to be at 8 p.m. I'm like, listen, ma'am, <laughs> I have not gotten any sleep. It is 6.30 in the morning right now. My flight is delayed by no, flight, my, no fault of my own. And I know there's more than one flight a day that goes between Charlotte, North Carolina, and Los Angeles, California. Like, I know that for a fact. I don't work for your airline, but I know for a fact that there are other options before 8 p.m. And she was like, oh, no, other flights before that are canceled. I was like, that's just not possible, ma'am. That's not possible. And there's no way I'm getting to L.A. at 11 p.m. And right now it's 6 a.m. and I haven't gotten any sleep. That's absolutely not going to happen. And she was like, well, there are no other options. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to talk to somebody else, and I'll call you back. So I called back and talked to a different person a few minutes later. And she was like, oh, okay, well, there's a flight at 4 p.m. that I can definitely get you on, so I'm going to go ahead and book you on that. Um, there's also a flight earlier than that, so when you get to Charlotte, just go to the desk, ask them to put you on the earlier flight or at least to put you on standby. But I'm going to definitely book you. So I'm like, okay, that's a little bit better. It's a little bit better. And so I make it to Charlotte, and there's this nice young lady at the gate, a sister, you know. And so she was like, okay, so you're definitely booked on the floor, but you need to go stand by um, for the earlier flight. It was like at like 1.50 or 2 o'clock or something like that. So anyway, so I go to the gate, um, you know, around two or whatever time, half an hour before the flight was about to leave to see if I could fly standby. Um, and it ended up working out. But Portia, what was crazy about it is even on that flight, there were two flight attendants missing. Oh, I was no. like, okay, I need to rethink this flying on January 1st thing because clearly I don't know if people are drunk. Like, I don't know what they're doing, but they don't have any intention of being at work, clearly. Uh, so that was a direct flight, so it ended up working out that even when they left, it was still good, and I still made it back to uh, California like, before 6 p.m., which ended up working out. 
Okay, so first of all, it was petty that all these flight attendants were missing. Okay, okay. But then, like, second of all, sometimes you've got to be persistent because this woman was trying to not put me on a flight for another, like, over 12 hours. Sometimes you just have to be like, okay, listen, <laughs> I understand you're just trying to do your job, but uh, no, that's not the flight that I'm getting on. And sometimes you just need to claim your blessing. Like, no, I'm, no mm-mm, I'm not waiting 14 hours, but thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'll come back later if I need you, but nah, that 14 hour thing, that's not going to work. Mm-mm. So, y'all, you know, I, I think most of the heavy travel season is over. But as you look forward to your future travels, just keep this in mind. There's always an option. There's always a way. Just be patient. Keep asking questions. And y'all pray for these flight attendants that they'll be there to uh, let your plane can leave because that's important. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at just 2 pearls. And you can email us at adventures at just2pearls.com. And remember, cultivate the pearl within you.